Hey listeners, it's Andy, and I'm here to see if you've tried Audible yet. With an incredible selection of audiobooks, it is the perfect way to dive deeper into the stories upon which some of your favorite films are based. Audible members get a credit every month to redeem on any audiobook they like, plus access to a huge plus catalog of podcasts, originals, and more. Just imagine listening to the books that inspired movies like The Bourne Identity, Moneyball, or sci-fi classics like Dune. The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text thenextreel to 500-500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 13 is over. Mothers, lock up your sons. I love you and your brother more than anything in the world. Uh, Andy, mm. so oh, man, I maybe I wonder if you felt the same way watching Thirteen that I did. Like as these as these uh, young women are parading across the screen, did you ever look at it and say, "My goodness, that looks just like Andy's daughter"? <laughs> I thought that the whole time, and I I thought maybe I'm going to start. Maybe I'm going to start texting you as you were watching it. I knew when you were watching it. And I thought maybe I, I would start texting you like, has your daughter, uh, you know, started doing the whippets or has she started punching her best friend <laughs> in the face? <laughs> or, uh, you know, has she started, did you, I mean, did you have, did you struggle at all watching 13 with a teenage daughter as you have? I watched this trailer. When it uh, when the movie was uh, you know initially getting its uh, theatrical release, and remember going oh I don't think I could handle watching that that just looks like you know every parent's nightmare sort of movie, and I didn't and now that I actually have a teenage girl who's the age that you know roughly the age of the girls in the film I mean it was it was like a nightmare it was like nightmare fuel everything in here I was like oh, no 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 it made me want to walk through her room in in incredible detail and look for are there any any secret drug paraphernalia taped to the sides of her dresser yes. anything I need to be aware of should I go through her bathroom cabinet what's going on which of her friends is is an Evie like character that I need to start worrying about I mean you know, I, I largely don't think I really actually need to worry. But it is one of those things where, I mean, the way that it depicts the realities of young kids going down the, these incredibly dark roads, I mean, it does make for a very challenging viewing, all the more so when you do have uh, a young girl who is this age. It was um, it was it was difficult. 
Yeah, I would say that's true. Uh, the only thing I could think of was, thank God, my daughter is now an adult and out of the house. Like that is the <laughs> that was the great relief. I could watch this with such freedom because she is this year going to be 20. She no longer really lives here. She's she is uh, out in the world. And thank the Lord it, that I didn't have to to watch this movie with someone of this age in my house. You I, do have someone really of this hard. age in your house. Just because he's a boy doesn't mean that it couldn't happen to him, too. <laughs> um, yeah, different stuff. Different stuff. Yes. Let's say I, I'm, I would be more worried. There, there are other movies that depict the things that I'm worried about for, for him to go through. But I don't think, I, and I know his friends, I don't think there are any uh, Evie-like uh, friends that he has. And I just think fathers and daughters have a different relationship. You know what I mean? Well, which is interesting because this movie really doesn't do much for depicting good father-daughter relationships. It's really mother-daughter in this film. So, yeah. Um, so to that end, it was really just more what's the daughter doing, less about their relationship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we do have the worst. I mean, the the it. We have a little bit of dad, but he is not an aspirational father figure. <laughs> he's yeah. He's a uh, rough character, roughly treated. Which well, true. It, and we we do have two father figures, actually. We should say say that for sure. One is the boyfriend. Um, this is uh, was it Jeremy Sisto? Yeah. Um, and the other, uh, which is um, Travis uh, Freeland, uh, D. W. Moffat uh, as Travis. So he's the one who's barely in here. Yeah, he's just there. once. Yeah, once physically, a few phone calls. Yep. Uh, but nice car, nice car. Okay. So here we have Which everybody, yep. everybody comments on <laughs> why, why are we doing this? It's a coming of age movie. That's the series we're talking about. Coming of age. It is. And uh, man, do we know how to pick them? This is. Yeah. And Catherine Hardwick's uh, not just coming of age, but coming of age debuts. This is Catherine Hardwick's debut feature film. She had been a production designer for a very long time before she decided to take her hand, try her hand at directing. And she, I mean, as a production designer, when you look at the stuff that she's done, you're like, oh, I've seen some of those. I mean, she started in 86 with Thrashin' and Tapeheads and I'm Gonna Get You Sucker. And then it goes on from there to stuff like eventually Tombstone, Car 54, Where Are You? Tank Girl, Two Days in the Valley, the Newton Boys, uh, Three Kings, Vanilla Sky, Laurel Canyon. Like she was doing some seriously big and interesting films as the production designer before she switched and and moved into directing. So I found that like I don't think I really knew how much work she had done in the production design world and what the films were until I was actually doing research on this. I'm like, wow, she had a much bigger career than I had realized. So, uh, so it's exciting to see her making this transition into directing with this particular film. And that this was her first film, right? Yes. I mean, that's what I think is, that's one of the things I think is really fascinating and just how this, this came about. Yeah. Hence the uh, coming of age debuts. <laughs> oh yeah. Right. It's in the, it's on the <laughs> right. tin. It's, it's, on, in, it's on the tin. It's on the tin. Well, uh, right. we'll talk more about the movie, but uh, this movie was rated R uh, upon its release for drug use, self-destructive violence, language, and sexuality, all involving young teens. And we are here to talk about all of that. Hey, 
hey, you want to watch this movie and help us out? Well, you know, you can. If you see the Apple or Amazon link to the movie in our show notes, just click on it. It will take you right to their site and you can rent or buy the movie. When you do this, we get a little tiny piece in return. We've got merch, truestory.fm slash TNR merch. Oh, man, what do you do with this one? Mm. Tongue rings? Probably tongue rings. Maybe a, a close-up of a belly button piercing? Mm, probably a belly button ring. Ugh, rough. Anyway, whatever it is, you'll put it on a shirt or a sticker or a mug or a mask or a pillow. Pillow, especially a pillow. With uh, everything else we're coming up with, truestory.fm slash TNR merch. We would love to feature audio reviews from you, our dear listeners. Just send us a short audio file to reviews at truestory.fm as soon as you watch the movie. We just might end up showcasing your voice on the show. We do record about two weeks in advance, so make sure you re- you get it in early. And, um, yeah, again, reviews at truestory.fm. Did you run out of steam on that one? <laughs> yeah. I, 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 <laughs> well, you know, what you might have been uh, have found yourself exhausted about is thinking about how you're going to keep up with this two-week uh, lead time thing when you don't even know what movies we're talking about from one week to the next. Well, we have a solution. Uh, just head over to our Letterboxd HQ page at letterboxd.com slash the next reel, and you can see our watch lists. You can see the upcoming movies we're talking about. You can see all of our reviews and links back to the shows. And when you're there... At Letterbox, the best social network for movie lovers, and you fall in love with it, you're going to decide, hey, I, I think I want to support the team and I want to get rid of the ads and I want to sign up for a pro or patron ma- membership to do that. And if you do just that with the discount code NEXTREEL, uh, you'll get 20% off and this works for renewals as well. Letterbox has their memberships. We have ours as well. Uh, if you head to our website, you can become a member and support the show, support the podcast. We would appreciate it. Uh, you can support it either at a month-to-month level or at the annual rate. And you get all sorts of wonderful goodies, including all sorts of extra episodes. That's really uh, the big thing that, uh, that members get. So many extra episodes, so many bonuses. You get access to uh, our retake episodes that we do at the end of every uh, at the end of every series. You get access to our flick chart re-ranking episodes. There's also a, an extra monthly member episode that fills in a movie from a series that we've done in the past. I don't even remember what's coming up this month. What's coming up this month? Do you remember? What are we doing? Have we even for April yet? Yeah, we haven't. We no, we got to do the poll. Oh my goodness! There's a poll. Yeah, the poll, the poll. The poll will be. Um, out, if not close to closing, by the time this episode's released. So, so many bonus episodes, and you get to be a big part of it, and so uh, we appreciate your help. So all you have to do is head over to truestory.fm slash TNR membership to learn more about our membership and our tiers. The most it'll cost you is five bucks a month or $55 a year. So where, where do we start? Where do we start with 13? She starts so nice, uh, young Evan Rachel Wood. Um, she, she's just so nice. She's a, she's a good student. Uh, and, and yet the social pressures. Yeah. Hanging out with good kids. Young, uh, Vanessa Hudgens is there. Very young. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, didn't didn't take long for her to then make her own switch. (laughs) Yeah, right. Boy, 
she ended up uh, uh, twisting she the goes, knot there too, yeah. didn't she? Spring yeah. break, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they, they're having a rough time, and uh, in the social uh, social uh, construct at school is rough. There is some aspiration. She wants to be a uh, big shot. She gets. She, they find that there's the the uh, handsome uh, uh, there are handsome boys. She wants to be a part of the handsome boys, and then she somehow gets connected with Evie, the uh, ne'er do well of our story. It's an interesting setup for the film, and I, you know, I I see the way that it played, and it's really interesting the way that the whole thing kicks off because she really is. Uh, she, the, she and her friends are at a new school. And they are, uh, or not a new school. It's like, you know, they are, they've moved up a grade and now they're in the middle school and they, um, uh, her brother's already there. He won't talk to her. It's like, you know, you don't talk to the young kids. All the bigger kids are kind of, you know, looking down on these new young kids. Uh, and they're terrible. I mean, <laughs> just a bunch of terrible, uh, terrible older kids, the way that they treat the younger kids. It's, it's, uh, you know, I mean, I guess that certainly happens to a certain extent. But, um, yeah. And then, and then she's drawn to this, this, you know, incredibly popular girl, hot girl. All the boys love her. Um, named Evie, and she there's this draw to her and that ability to have that kind of that power, that popularity. I mean, it really is a the whole start of this film is about I want that. How do I get to be like that so I'm not looked down upon um, like I am right now? And so it's an interesting journey that we have as we see her try to figure out what can I do to you know, to move into that popular world. And it all starts with, you know, a few brief conversations with Evie, who generally dismisses her and, and makes fun of her socks. And and so she changes the way she dresses and everything. And And then, you know, when Evie gives her the fake number and stuff, and she kind of, in an interesting way, turns it around into something that helps her get connected to Evie. And I found that was interesting. Like, she actually goes to the place that Evie said, even though Evie had given her a fake number, and and ends up, like, stealing some lady's purse. And that is the thing that kind of sets her in uh, as, oh, you know what? You could be in our group. And it's an interesting... um line that she's willing to cross right there uh, you know that she kind of takes it like you know what i i'm i'm gonna do this i want to be popular they're stealing stuff in the store i'm not ready for that oh this lady just put her purse down next to me and isn't paying attention and it's it's interesting and it's I, what i found this film depicts really well is these little things that young people do trying to be popular or, you know, be cool or whatever it might be. And she so easily kind of steps into those things and becomes somebody that she never would have believed she was, you know, four months earlier. And and here she is, this person who's stealing stuff and, and just goes down this really dark road with Evie, who really is um, uh, just a an interesting antagonist because she has so much... Um, there, there's a lot of obviously uh, obvious draw to her and obvious problems that she incredibly has. Um, but it's interesting to see the way that uh, that Tracy um, navigates that over the course of the film. 
Yeah, I think so, too. And I think one of the things that the film does really well is it it really highlights the spirit of uh, exploration gone wrong. Right. Because, I, you know, we when you're a teenager, when you have teenagers, like so much of what they want to do in growing up is explore and experiment with other stuff. The other stuff, largely, I think, that, that comes into their lives that maybe they've been told you can't do this until or you shouldn't do this, you know, ever. And so this movie is a movie about um, this young woman who discovers just how, uh, and I'll say morally fluid she is, right? That, you know, in, in terms of like she she didn't see herself as somebody who would steal someone's purse or wallet. And yet there she was. She did it because at what cost comes popularity? She answers that question for herself through this sort of moral fluidity that she has. Um, she discovers that um, she is, um, you know, I, she probably never would have seen herself as a, a, a drug user, but then also discovers, wow, when you're hanging out with people that you think are really cool and they show you this thing and you try it and it's also really fun, um, they uh, that that becomes another area of fluidity that and exploration that that you have. And I think that's one of the things that I think Evan Rachel Wood actually does really well is even though much of the movie feels like it it moves pretty fast and there are some roller coaster emotional changes that I, I think are I struggle with. Overall, I think Evan Rachel Wood really, really plays that character as someone who is exploring the boundaries of her fluidity really well. I mean, she ends up um, having sex with this boy that she really likes. She's super enthusiastic when he says, can I, you Did know. Did she have sex with him? Well, well, maybe she just, uh, well, there was something. Uh, yeah, I think that it's oral sex. I think she performs I think oral, it's oral sex. sex. Yeah, it's oral yeah. sex. And so, you know, she they do that and she's she she doesn't, seem to be saddled with any sort of regret or any sort of of pain, you know, as a result of like emotional pain as a result of doing that. She seems to go right through it at the same time when uh, Evie says, you probably don't even know how to kiss. And then they have their um, the two girls have their uh, kissing scene. And um, there is, again, an exploration of this fluidity, um, I, I think, really I, I believed it. I believed her journey through this exploration of fluidity. I think the movie does that well. It really, I, I thought so too. I mean, it's it's an interesting journey in in the ups and downs, and and this this ride that she's going on over these over these four months, kind of this the course of a semester, basically. And you know, as we start learning what's going on with Evie, as as Tracy is going down this dark, darker and darker hole, wanting to try these things, and you know, getting nervous about it, but wanting to do it, she wants to be cool, and and she keeps kind of pushing herself to the edge, and it's it's a really interesting uh, and dark road that she ends up taking, and so much of it is. It's it's like that dance with the devil that she's doing. Like these things are interesting to her because they're not allowed. And so she kind of keeps riding that line because there's there's an intrigue and it gets darker and darker. And but also it's like she starts making decisions that you start questioning how much is this Evie or is she just hit this point where she's just, you know, uh, unleashed and she doesn't know how to control herself anymore. You know, by the time they're they're with their neighbor Luke and and coming on to him it's like is like is Nikki or is is Evie really the one who's pushing so much or is Tracy also there pushing uh, to make that happen and and so she really does 
start feeling like she's going down this road that she just can't control herself. And I think that's one of the interesting things about the film that it depicts this age where you don't have that wisdom and they make these decisions and just don't know uh, how to control it. Uh, and and it, it's very easily, um, you know, turns into something that's just so much bigger than they ever intended. And and she just she can't stop it. And that's that's what made this ride harrowing and very difficult as a parent, because you're watching her make these decisions that are just horrifying. And it's interesting to see, you know, as we uh, later in the film see, you know, Holly Hunter playing the mother, her reactions as she starts figuring out what's going on. And she had thought, oh, they're they're stealing some stuff. And, and like, she kind of had a sense. And then you have that conversation when when Tracy blows up. It's like, how did you not know that we were doing these things? And she's just like, well, I figured it was some things, but I didn't know how far you had taken it. And that, right. I think, is the incredible shocking moment for mom. And, you know, I mean, you know, there's, there's a very interesting relationship there and interesting characters because we'll definitely need to talk more about mom too. But that's what I find so interesting is that lack of control that she just, she's, you know, a car with no brakes careening down the hill and just can't stop. There's a, there's an interesting thing. Like I kept finding myself wondering, like what was going on in, um, in Evie's world that makes Evie, but such a, uh, I guess, what is it, an adept controller of her own sort of fluidity in this moral context, right? Because, like, and we see this all the time, there is this bad influence that comes in and has the influence on um, the our protagonist character. And our protagonist character, over the course of her arc, outpaces the uh, the the challenges that are presented from the the bad influence character. And it becomes uh, just sort of unraveled in the process, right? I I feel like that's what I was looking at here, and I couldn't help but but look at Evie and think, why is why is Evie, and is it is it believable that Evie is outpaced and as stable as she is in her sort of level of uh, degradation, right? She doesn't seem to fall apart. She's a, a pathological liar and. Um, you know, a thief and a drug user, and she doesn't seem dealer and a dealer, right? Dealer, and she just seems super stable. Like there's no uh, there's no projected end point to her. She's just going to go on being a bad influence in somebody else's life now when they move to wherever they end up moving. I, this was the first time I watched a movie like this and ha- and had this thought, like, okay, I get it that we're watching Tracy and her fall. And we have to watch that fall because of her relationship with Evie. But does is it believable that Evie is just going to move on? Like, what are the what are the? Uh, I, did you struggle with this at all? Am I making any sense? Yeah, no, I, you're making sense. I, it, it's an interesting challenge the film has in how much do you take Evie down this road without having her turn into somebody who ODs in the end. And she's just yeah. pretty much an omnipresent uh, sense of uh, kind of corruption <laughs> that she really ends up being. Yeah. Um, I, but I, I don't know. I, I buy it because I think there are a variety of of people. And I, I think we, we have a couple interesting characters that are depicted here. And I think as Evie, we see that she's lived this way for her whole life. This is just, there's nothing different 
about anything for her. You know, she's grown up with a mom who's, uh, or her mom's gone. What did she, I, I don't, who knows what really happened to her mom, you know, if she oh, was yeah, a we get a couple of different, right, right. Yeah, right. Um, but I, but obviously there is something that had happened because she's being raised by her cousin, uh, played by Deborah Carr Unger, who I thought was, uh, great in the small role that she had playing, I think that she works, uh, she said she's, she works as like a waitress, but I had a sense it was like at a strip club or something, the way that she was yeah. dressing and doesn't care if, uh, if Evie's drinking and clearly is not there to parent her. You know, she's almost treating her like a big sister and hey, I'm a stripper and, or work at a strip club. And so, you know what? You're going to be raised in a capacity like me. Like when Mel brings the two girls over to, check and see what's going on and and to drop Evie off, you know, she's, you know, she finds mom there with like this young boy uh, or not boy, but, you know, young teen that, that she's obviously doing drugs with or something. And, and so clearly it's already an unstable situation. And so I think that Evie has had that long enough where she's just kind of adapted to this, this lifestyle that she's living in and it's and you know she has her way of getting through it and and does what she needs to to survive and the interesting with tracy coming into that is she's never lived with that sort of lifestyle and so it becomes that journey of excess that she really falls into and so that's where i felt like evie really worked for me because and and she really what was so interesting is she really attaches to mel and having a more stable home and she wants to move in with them and all this sort of stuff because she doesn't have as stable a life when she's living with uh, with you know her cousin here at Mel's. It's I mean she still is a terrible child and and manipulative and lies all the all that stuff. But she seems actually happier there, you know. And and like I I really did believe it. Like when Mel says that she's that she's leaving her there, and and she has and you see. Um, you see her run out the door and you, you have Tracy follow her. Oh, you're talking about the end when, when she's, she says, I'm leaving you at your house with Brooke. Yes. But yeah. Okay. Yes, exactly. And, and Tracy follows her out and, and they're back by the dumpster and Evie's just standing by the dumpster, just crying. It's like, I really felt that like she really yeah. thought that there might be a chance for her to find her, her version of more of a normalcy. Um, but it's it it wasn't going to happen because she she's not the sort of person that Mel can have in her house, and so that was interesting to me. I f- I thought there was a real some interesting levels that we were getting with Evie as a character that that showed her as um, a more robust character than just kind of the straight up always manipulative, always evil character that otherwise she is. Well, I I get it. And the payoff to that, though, is it feels like a punchline of more manipulation when she outs um, Tracy by telling Brooke where and and Mel where everything is in Tracy's room. And uh, she starts manipulating that uh, it was actually Tracy who's the bad seed and not her, 
even though we, the audience, know that everything that Evie, or the, everything that Tracy knew, Evie taught her. Evie was the one who instigated the piercings, the tongue piercing, the belly button piercing, like the, all of the stuff. Talking about a tattoo coming soon. Um, you know, the fake ID, the, the drugs, obviously. Like all of those things we know came from Evie, but that manipulation got turned around. And I'm left with this feeling that Evie's going to go on to this other place and just continue to be herself with a new you know, for lack of a better word, Mark. In this case, the Mark, I, I didn't know beat to beat whether the Mark was Tracy or Mel in her manipulation. Clearly, she needed something, right? Well, clearly, she needed yeah. some sort of fulfillment from her relationship with with Mel. But I couldn't I, I couldn't get a beat on whether it was that she was addicted to that sort of uh, uh, manipulation or found it was easier in some way or or she got more delight out of betraying uh, Mel because, you know, Mel was was kind to her, but she still knew she could do whatever she wanted, sneaking out, et cetera, et cetera. Like, was was that did she just like that deviance? And you can't be deviant when somebody doesn't really care about you um, as as she was experiencing with Brooke. Um, I, I don't know. I and, and I'm not saying that is at all to to make it the, to, as a, a detractor of the movie. I actually found like that complexity felt felt pretty real. Like I, I enjoyed it. But it was hard. But that's why I think it's so interesting, because um, it is complex and it is difficult. And I think there was a level of her, the the hurt that she felt in getting left by Mel and, uh, and uh, well, largely Mel and, and kind of a, a more family lifestyle that she was kind of living over there that she ended up taking it out on Tracy. You know, we see her not having Tracy hop into the Jeep when she and all those boys drive up. We see her not returning uh, Tracy's calls. And then all of the stuff happens where, and I don't know, like, did mom, did, I keep calling her mom, but did Brooke, her cousin, did she actually find her stash? And that was kind of the, I, I felt like, I felt like Brooke had found the stash and was upset that, she found out that, you know, here's her her kid, her cousin that she's largely taking care of that is doing this stuff that she doesn't want her to be doing. And so Evie really kind of spins it and makes it seem like it's all Tracy's fault. Tracy's the one who got me into all of this stuff and used that as a way to one, get back at Tracy, but two, also to find a scapegoat so she didn't get in, into as much trouble. Um, because clearly Brooke is fairly clueless. I mean, we think Mel is pretty clueless, not realizing the extent to which Tracy has gone down this road. But Brooke is, uh, you know, naively clueless you know, when it comes to Evie, because she's not providing a stable place for Evie to handle anything. And she's very upset about what Evie says Tracy had actually taught her how to do. So it's it's an interesting manipulation that Evie has, but I think it's largely a way to also just get back at Tracy for the hurt that she ended up causing her because of that whole the way that things ended. Yeah, I do you do you feel like uh I, I my sense is that the movie is not sympathetic to either of the quote moms, right? To either Mel oh. or Brooke. And Really? Yeah, I mean I I don't feel like uh, I, I mean, obviously, Brooke is not a good mother figure, 
And the her twist at the end, when she finally turns around and is like, oh, now I'm going to mother you. We found the stash that made it feel a little bit unbelievable to me. I didn't I didn't care for it. Like it, it was a bit too, uh, you know, hard left turn, given the experience we'd had with Brooke the whole time. Brooke is a hot mess that she uh, suddenly is aware that there even is a stash seemed out of left field to me. And oh, I don't know. I really? th- I think there are people like this who, when they find that there is, uh, who aren't necessarily great parents, when there's one little thing like this that comes up, it turns into their cause celeb, right? They yeah, go at it like, I cannot believe you've done this to my child. And it's, yeah. it's like, you know, it is like intense how some of these people find ways to accuse others and never look within. And I think that's largely what is happening here. Like she's she'll never see that her lifestyle, the way that she has chosen to kind of raise Evie has led to any of this. And that's what I found so interesting. And for me, wholly believable about the way that that whole scene played out. Okay, I I didn't it it didn't communicate quite well enough for me uh, on the on screen the way it did to you. I I it felt like a, a hard left and and so I I struggle with it. I also struggle on the other side with um you know with the film's portrayal of um of Holly Hunter as Mel. I, I, uh, I and I I actually I should say I don't. I don't struggle with it. I think she's fantastic. I, I really think she's fantastic. And on this side of the the family dynamic, I find um, the the movie is like uh, sufficiently portraying the complexities of life for for this family, right? And the fact that Tracy is so susceptible to Evie's manipulations and to her own desires to be popular, uh, how that is reflected through Holly Hunter. Um, who is who has taken the the tack of just trying to be a team and a partner and a friend and not so much a parent through the beginning the the start of the film um i I think that was that was really solid and that it might not have been a great choice from a parenting perspective like that there was so little discipline but also i think this is where holly hunter shines for her, the major transition of realizing that she could not any longer be a friend and a partner and a teammate. She had to be a parent. And I think for a lot of us, like waking up to the fact that your child needs to be parented can come as a surprise and a really hard one. And uh, but that is is very much what I think, um, you know, Hunter is able to to convey here. So for everything that I struggled with, with um, with Brooks, the way Brooks' character was written, I, I didn't struggle with with Mel. Yeah. I It is an incredible portrayal of a very complex role that she has to portray here of this mom who is, as you said, kind of more the friend to her kid and is really struggling with the parenting side of it. And we see that come up a number of times when she just doesn't know how to do this. And I mean, it gets harder as kids get older because they become teenagers and, and they start having their own minds and want to do their own things and want to not listen to you. And it's, you know, it's a real challenge and trying to find the way to navigate that is hard. And, and I think that she carries that off, uh, you know, perfectly. And it's, it's really interesting to see her struggle to make these decisions and 
And, you know, who does she call for advice? Do, do I call, you know, my, my, do I talk to my psychic friend about it? Or do I talk to this other mom that's her, one of her friends who's, I mean, so poor that she and her daughter have to spend time living in a tent. You know, they're pretty much homeless or calling to calling her sponsor and uh, talking to her. It certainly doesn't work when she tries to get dad to help. And that was, that was for me such a painful conversation when she's on the porch talking to her dad or talking to her ex-husband about like, she needs you. I, you know, I, you're not hearing me. I, she needs to go stay with you. I can't do it. I can't do it. And I mean, it's just like that sense of abandonment that she has, like we're in this together and you are contributing nothing and I'm left alone and I have to figure this out now. And that was really powerful because it's, it's hard and it's, it turns into this thing where she has to um, like, just try to figure out how to make it work. And even when it's not, and that I, yeah, I her depiction of, of that course of figuring out how do I, how the hell do I navigate this? I mean, it was, uh, for me, just an incredible portrayal of a mother really struggling to sort through all this. Yeah, I, I think so too. And and you know, it was funny that talk, you you bring up the uh, astrologer friend, right? That and and you know that scene where everything blows up and the astrologer friend, all she's trying to say is this family needs to heal. Like there's nothing <laughs> particularly woo woo about what she's talking about, but she's just speaking actually the truth uh, yeah, right here right. that the family is broken and needs to heal and nobody is in a place to hear it. It gets to that sort of like readiness for change. Like has the movie significantly built a case that there, that it's time to make a turn and it hadn't. And that's the, that's where the conflict lives and i think that that you know works that that works pretty well for me yeah good yeah very well it's very good well. i mean holly hunter I mean, she's she's just i mean it's hard yeah holly hunter is like she's too good holly hunter <laughs> how dare she <laughs> she's yeah you know it's interesting because she goes through these uh periods where i feel like i i don't see her a lot or i like in bigger things but i mean i guess she's she was busy through this whole period i mean Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou and Time Code in 2000 and things you can tell just by looking at her. And then in 2002, Moonlight Mile, Levity and this in, in 2003, Little Black Book and The Incredibles 2004. So I guess, I mean, yeah, she's just one of those people that is always around. It's just sometimes I feel like I just don't see her a whole lot. I guess between like 2011, 2015, you know, she kind of slowed down a little bit with not quite as many things, but still, she's a busy, busy woman. Well, and then you know, 2018, she starts doing a lot more TV, right? That's that's predominantly where she is for the last two or three years. Uh, here and now, Succession, uh, Bless the Hearts, and Mr. Mayor. I haven't seen any of those things. Uh, I'm, I'm not a Succession user, but they're all like short runs, it looks like. Yeah. Uh, uh, she's such a fantastic um, actor and uh, makes me want to go watch broadcast news right now. Oh, and she had Saving Grace back in 07 also, which was, yeah. I mean, she was Grace, and it was a pretty long run for that. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, TV, yeah, she's she's just busy and uh, always somebody who I have enjoyed. And, um, you know, whether it's her comedy stuff or whether she jumps into this uh, this sort of project. So, have, have you watched any of Mr. Mayor? No, I haven't seen any of her TV. Well, that this is the one that this is Ted Danson's show uh, after Good Place is is Mr. Mayor. And so it's kind of uh, I, I haven't watched any of it, but my my take on it is sort of a Parks and Recs kind of a 
uh, style of a show. I, I may be speaking wildly out of class, but uh, I think uh, it, it bodes well. And I have to say, I didn't even know she was in it uh, until started looking at, at credits for the people in this movie. And so um, it, it intrigues me. It makes me want to go watch it even more. Her character's name is Arpy. Yeah. It's an interesting name. Yep. Well, she's she's fantastic. It's hard to it's hard to not love her. Um, but how about the girls? Yeah. How about the girls? I feel like it's it's uh, maybe we take a little sidebar and talk about this getting this movie uh, written because this I yes, think is quite, fascinating. Quite interesting, really is. Yeah. I, so uh, apparently, Nikki Reed, who was thirteen at the time, uh, who plays Evie. Uh, I'm I'm not entirely sure how she connected with Hardwick. Are they like are they family friends? Were they in a movie? Did did they do a movie together? Was it because uh, Twilight was after this? They are. They they have. Um, she calls Nikki her surrogate daughter. They've she's known her since she was five. Okay, so they sat down to so, write. I, I, yeah, because I guess she was in a long term relationship with her father for a while, and that's okay. kind of how they came to know. All right. So uh, they sat down to write what was supposed to be a uh, a comedy project, coming of age project, and they were going to shoot it on video with a very, very low budget. And it was just going to be a fun project for them to work on together. And then it came off the rails and it became what it became. Um, as I understand it, it was this Nikki's experience of uh, watching one of her friends get arrested for dealing meth. Uh, you know, she was actually in the the um, real story. She was the Tracy character. But that's what the Evie character would always say. Right. <laughs> I mean, really? Uh, and so she is uh, she sat down and with Catherine as a 13 year old, they together wrote this script and uh, telling the story of uh, Nikki's essentially, you know, fictionalized real life experience of of being the Tracy in this in this uh, story. And uh, it became a much harder um, edged story uh, um, and became something that Catherine wanted to uh, make a little bit uh, bigger deal about. I think it's interesting because Reed did say later when she looked back on it in, in a kind of a retrospective that she she felt that she portrayed her family the way she did because she she made it a little too autobiographical. And as a 13 year old, that's probably, you know, write what you know, sort of mentality. Yeah. Um, but she she apologized later saying, you know, how dare I portray my father as being a totally vacant, careless schmuck like she um, looked back on her views as a the kind of that child perspective and realized you know it, it, there were probably other ways to look at this stuff that she didn't realize because she was only 13 you know and 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 so had a very particular uh, point of view but i think that is also one of the things that makes it strong is that it really does feel like it is from this point of view that you don't see very often it's it's very interesting to get that perspective. And I, I was kind of shocked when the credit popped up at the end because I hadn't looked beforehand that um, that Catherine Hardwick directed it and co-wrote it with Nikki Reed, who played her. I was like, what? Really? Wow. No wonder. OK, that makes sense. So, yeah, very interesting. It, it deals with a couple of things um, that, you know, well, obviously it deals with a lot of really hard things. One of the things I think is most interesting was cutting. And, um, you know, she does um, cut herself. Um, and that is a um, 
I don't understand how it started, but it is something that, you know, when I, I, we actually have very, very close uh, friends who were, have dealt with this with their uh, daughter in a very similar fashion um, to, uh, to what we see here with um, Tracy and, and her experience, locking herself in the bathroom, getting out the razor blade, cutting her arm. Have you ever run into any of this? I haven't, no. And, uh, uh, but I know it's, I mean, it is a real thing. It's a, it's a challenging thing. And I, I shouldn't say no. I mean, I had friends. I knew kids who were doing it when I was, uh, when I was in school, when I was in junior high. Um, but it wasn't something that I've dealt with in my own circles, um, since I've become a parent. So, um, but it's, it's also one of those things. It's like, you never know when it's going to start and how do you, how do you keep track of it? You know, and it's, it's just one of those things. It's used really interestingly in the movie, too, because it demonstrates the length of the struggle that Tracy has been having. My assumption is that that Mel knew about Tracy's cutting before her skin is largely healed, just scarred. Well, and it was it, like beforehand, like when, when we see her first do it, it's with the the kind of the, the nail trimming scissors. Yeah. And it's more I mean, she's doing some cutting, but also there's just like when we see the scars, it was a lot of pokes like she had just almost been yes. like poking and so it wasn't quite like those lines that you would more telltale you yeah. know it's just those pokes which are a little easier to hide i suppose right 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 so uh that is that's one of the things that i think is an interesting bit of narrative so she's been doing some of this experimentation with cutting and it gets very very serious when she you know when when she becomes less stable as a result of her relationship with evie and mom and and all of that uh, oof, it, it, it's just it's hard. It's hard to watch. It's hard to watch the, the level of detail they show the close up that they show uh, is is hard to watch. Um, but the other one that they don't actually show, which I think the movie does quite poorly, is the tongue piercing. Andy, have you ever been close to somebody after they have gotten their tongue pierced? No, I I've, I I went with somebody to get their nose pierced. And that was the only time that I've done that and don't want to do it again because it, it was horrifying. And she nearly crushed my hand as she went through the process. <laughs> well, the, the tongue is an interesting one. And I think it, 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 it I don't know, it, it's rough in the context of the movie. My sister-in-law uh, came out to uh, Portland and was staying with us and went out and got her tongue pierced. And Andy, it was, let's just say, not the kind of thing you could just talk without opening your mouth very wide uh, and get away with not showing mom because the tongue swells, Andy. The tongue swells big. You can't speak normally with a, a fresh tongue pierce. You can't eat. She was losing weight. She was like it for a significant amount of time. The tongue pierce is was a serious thing. I don't know if her experience was, uh, you know, not uh, in alignment with the rest of the world. Maybe there was I, I don't know, was she somehow naturally in uh, swollen because of weird infection. I don't know. But she she it was it seemed like a healthy thing that just naturally is incredibly damaging to the tongue. And I thought that the movie's sort of hand wavy, like I just just don't talk. She'll never find out was uh, too much to be believed. Well, saying that was not too much because that's exactly what my sister-in-law did when she got her tongue pierced. She's like, well, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut so they don't see it. Like, that's the mentality people have. Yeah, that's the mentality. But you can't, you can't, you can't like talk to somebody who has fresh tongue piercing and not know something's wrong with your mouth. Yeah, I, I think that there's something to that. But I, I think that there is, 
an element to youth healing quicker. Like I know when I had my tonsils out as an adult, they said, this would have been better to do when you were a kid because you would heal in like less than a day. And you probably wouldn't, other than eating ice cream, you wouldn't notice. But as an adult, it's going to be two weeks. And it was. It was, it was two, two weeks, weeks. Yeah, of torture. Two weeks. Yeah. yeah. Um, but as a kid, I mean, so you do So you're saying heal the quicker. miraculous healing powers of youth. Yeah, I, I think that there's something to that. Is what, is what makes the movie believable. It, well, yeah, that's, I just, I, I don't end up having an issue with it. I think that it probably doesn't work as well when they're, you know, picked up and she's like, I mean, she doesn't seem like she's trying to say, oh, my tooth hurts. I got a sore tooth or anything like she just, she's acting totally normal. <laughs> yes. You know, I think that she could have done oh, something to fake hurts. it a little bit, but you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The belly button, um, that was good too. That was another piercing. And again, either of the piercings, they don't actually show the piercing part. They do, like something goes awry with the piercing in the, the belly button piercing in bed. Um, but they, they, and I, I was never quite clear like what that was because the next time we see the results of it. Well, she poked it wrong, but she actually says that because <laughs> because um, uh, uh, Nikki did actually poke her in the stomach. And so that's yeah. that's why she says that. And so they left that in. But it was I mean, obviously, in the film, neither of them, uh, Evan Rachel Wood had had a magnetic tongue one and then the, the clip on belly button one, um, although Nikki did have an actual tongue ring. But um, it was. Oh, just, yeah, tough things to watch. I mean, my sister asked me to help her pierce her ear once. And let me just say, it didn't go well. And so I can imagine doing that on a belly button and trying to make that work. And it's... You're an accessory to piercing? Uh, failed piercing. Oh, Failed Andy. piercing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, get some ice cubes and a needle. It'll be fine. Yeah, let's just say. <laughs> Don't do it. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't it fine. Was, <laughs> oh, it was awful. Uh, no. <sighs> I think it's Just, I think it's it's good that you say that Nikki had an actual tongue ring because that actually knowing that she wrote the story about her being the role of Tracy of course she has a tongue ring. She would have gotten the tongue ring when she was living the experience. Yeah, probably, probably. Not bad. Believable. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting. I I really uh th- there are a lot of difficult things portrayed here. Um I mean there's a lot of, you know, underage sex and and you know getting together with people that i think was you know difficult to watch but i think it was all handled in a way that that worked in context of the story uh, but i you know all of it really services this story of watching tracy go down this dark road and with evie manipulating her and mel and uh you know you can see that her brother mason uh, tracy's brother mason kind of sees what's going on and tries to say things to get help for her but nobody really is listening like mom never quite sees it dad certainly doesn't and that was interesting because i i loved that scene when mason actually tells dad she needs help dad and dad's just not there and then he's just like whatever and yeah like uh, wow you know some some strong stuff the way that these things were portrayed um yeah i i thought it was um I'm trying to think of what that would be called, because the, the like when Mason says whatever, that is that, that's a kind of thing with it that makes me stop because and think about the the trouble that they're having communicating. Like, is it believable that the son wouldn't actually finish the sentence with dad? Like, dad, you have to help. You have to help. Why? Somebody tell me why. Just tell me why. And the son doesn't say because she's falling apart, she's high, and she's hanging out with this this terrible person. Like, 
the son walks away and that felt like incomplete script writing like it it just no 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 it felt uh, incomplete really? to me yeah see oh. it totally it, it works so well for me because this is this moment where he realizes how clueless dad is like dad doesn't see anything and when when brady says something like that it's a kid looking to his his parents to 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 say like you know what do i need to do how can i help but but i mean <laughs> But dad just like attacks him with this response, like, God, what, why won't people just talk to me? You know, and and I, I don't know. I, to me, that spoke so strongly about dad's inability to to connect with this family and and to keep putting this wall up. Like he he's the way that he says whatever it was that he said, like instantly told Mason is just like, no matter what you say, it's not going to be enough. I, I, I'm not going to invest in this because you people just are nothing but trouble and no one will just, just you know, say it. And, and it's, it, it turns into this thing like, bring it to me. Like, he's not going to actively try to get involved. He's passively saying, unless someone says something to me, you know, like, and, and so, it, I don't know. I think, I think Mason sees that. He's just, his dad just doesn't want to do it. He's looking for excuses. Huh. I, I feel like we kind of saw a different movie in that scene. Uh, I, I felt like this was the dad finally saying, like, I, I hear that you say there's a problem, but nobody has told me what the problem is. And without the problem, I'm going to go back to work. And nobody steps up to actually tell him in clear words at any point there is a problem and here's what it is. Should, and, should the dad have to try to get that out of a like a 14 or 15 year old boy? Like that's yes. nonsense. No. Yes. Like, yes. No, you're asking a child to be as as wise and, and able to have that conversation as an adult. And that's not fair to Mason. I'm not, Mason I'm not asking, said, no, no, no. I'm not asking help. a child. I'm asking the script. I'm asking the script to give me a clear demonstration to dad. And I think the reason is because the dad is supposed to be a secondary character in the movie or a, a tertiary character in the movie. But someone needs to have the conversation with the dad. And Holly Hunter didn't do it. And Mason has the opportunity at the end and he doesn't do it. Let's say I totally agree with you that it's unfair to tell this 14 or 15 year old kid to do that. Fine. The script lets us down by not letting the dad in. And that's not believable. I don't believe the dad is written as a character that is as uh, laissez-faire as you're portraying him. I believe the dad is out working hard to try to keep everybody afloat through their separation and divorce and things are in chaos and he just doesn't know. And the script doesn't give him an opportunity, which is fair strategy if that's the story you want to tell, but it's not believable to me. Well, I, uh, I mean, you know, According to Nikki, she did not write the dad in a fair way. So, I mean, to your point, I think that there is some of that, that she kind of purposefully wrote him that way. And I, I think yeah. that would be her um, decision to have portrayed him as this guy who doesn't do that. But I do think that uh, that Mel has said a number of times, we see her on that phone call with him, and he's just, he doesn't seem active in a way where he's wanting to figure stuff out. When he talks to Tracy... He's disengaged. He does not engage in the conversation with the one person who he needs to engage with, who's everyone saying she's having a problem. And that's that's on him. That is 100 percent on him. I agree that it, I agree that part is on him. But at no point do we get a sense <laughs> at no point do we get a sense that 
Mel has ever, you know, in in the the course of things falling apart, been clear and and had a clear discussion about the exact evidence that she's been having. She lets him off around every corner, right? She lets him off on every phone call. And she does that, I think, narratively, because she needs to use those calls as a way to further separate uh, Tracy and and Mel. Like, I get that. I, I well, I think that there's an element to that that I, I think speaks to family dynamics in a divorce. And I think that there's an interesting relationship that we have between Mel and and her ex that comes out when we have that moment when we have Mel on the phone and she's just she's she's seeking help. She's trying to figure out like she's going down this dark road. I don't know what to do. And we see that Tracy's standing outside listening in like, oh, she's actually talking to dad seriously about this. And then it turns out to just be her sponsor. And that was almost like Mel showing that she's incapable of having the conversation that she needs to with her ex. Like she can have the conversation with her sponsor. That's not who Tracy needs to have needs for her to have that conversation with. She needs her to have that actual same conversation, but with dad, but she won't. And that's, I think a a side effect that you end up getting oftentimes in, in divorces in situations like this. I can see that, you know, that, Pinpointing all of this on the script is something that you could easily do. But I also think it can be that these characters struggle with this. And this is part of the reason that all of these relationships are failing. And that's why I think it's interesting. And I guess I just don't have as many issues with it as you do, because I I can see that it can be the way that these people end up behaving. Yeah, I, I guess it can. I guess I'm I'm more on on team Nikki that that you know I I just believe and it, and it, it blows up for me when we have the opportunity for Mason and he walks away because uh, I I do believe that Mason has shown throughout the film that he is much more willing to to tell on um, you know Tracy um, and and to to do these things to out the behavior that she's doing uh and then when he has the chance to actually do it with dad he doesn't and and i i feel like that is actually a a a knock on the script because i'm not i just don't believe that he wouldn't i don't believe that he wouldn't but once i start pulling that back it it really is like there's a dad i i see the dad through the the sort of lenticular postcard of of i guess more optimism that he's a guy who probably who who um would have been more engaged had he been given the opportunity to be more engaged and um and and that's uh, you know I, I i get that that's my sort of pov but it it just feels like incomplete to me so it's fine it's fine okay so but he's also a very very small part and and the overall architecture of the movie is around these women and their relationship with one another right it's a it's a mostly uh a female cast uh, we do have the the boyfriend who I think is, um, you know, speaking of of complexity, uh, I, I think he's fantastic. Um, we don't get a whole lot uh, out of him. He's mostly there. But the final um, sort of confrontation, he has a moment that is a highlight in the movie when he's changing the sheets because he's trying to step up because the other little girl was sleeping in the bed and wet the bed or the dog wet the bed somebody wet the bed and they had the confrontation in in tracy's bedroom and tracy insults him again horribly and we get to see him perform like i i felt like that was such a wonderful moment of his restraint 
that that spoke volumes in his uh, simply walking out of the room and closing the door. I thought that was really good. I like him a lot, Cisco. Cisco? Cisco. Cisco. He should play the Cisco kid. He should. But they'd call it the Cisco kid. They would. That's what they would do. Yeah. I think that would be good. Or Captain Cisco on Deep Space Nine. Oh, okay. There you go. He could there be that. Go. He could have been that in a in a remake. He's an actor that I I definitely like. Uh, hasn't been in. Uh, I definitely like him, but he also hasn't been in a ton of things that that I have watched over the years. He's just kind of pops in periodically. I think more than anything, my father in law like loves him right now because of the FBI TV show that uh, that he's in, um, which he's been on for, in for a number of years. Um, uh, but yeah, he's great. I think that he's he's great in his in his part. He it's interesting because until that scene, like he really wasn't given a whole lot to do. He's just kind of the the loser boyfriend that Tracy has issues with. Because I, I don't know, there was that. I mean, there's actually a flashback that we have very briefly in the film. Um, and I was trying to figure out what was going on in that flashback. Was he like she walks into the kitchen and he's uh, smoking crack in the kitchen? Um, was that, was there something else that had happened in there too? Like, did you see anything else or was it, was that it? Well, I felt like, yeah, I felt like he was with mom. Mom was in there too. And they were doing some sex stuff and some drug stuff. And, uh, everybody was in there because it was mom who gets up off the ground and closes the door. Okay. In that flashback. Okay. Yeah. I, I, for some reason, and then I was like, was there a, an overdose or something. I, I, I couldn't really tell because uh, it, it was cut very quickly. But yeah, I think that's probably just it, that that it was her memory of where he had taken mom. And now mom was on her road trying to recover. He clearly was still having issues, although it seemed like he's trying to recover. It's really only that last moment that you just talked about where he gets pushed across the line by Tracy and has to leave the house because he has to go mm -hmm. get high. Like, it's just, he's gone too far now. And, and, and he's like, I, I can't handle it anymore. This place makes me crazy. And so he, he left and then comes back later barefoot. And, <laughs> uh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a, that's a, uh, uh, we're going to just, uh, lay it all out here. Kind of a resolution to, uh, it, did did he did he go see his sponsor or did he go get high? And then he shows up with his shirt open and his feet bare, and he says, "Nice car." <laughs> and he goes yeah. inside and brings her that that little collapsible donkey uh, toy, which I thought cat. was that, the little kitty it, cat. Was it a cat? I don't know. Yeah, little, yeah, it's yeah cute. the red and black cat. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a fun little moment. So yeah, I like Jeremy Sisto. Yeah. Um, and Brady Corbett, we didn't mention, was the brother. And he's, um, I mean, he's one of those young actors. He started here, did a lot of uh, movies, and uh, I, I think more now um, he's moved into kind of the other side of his career uh, as a as a writer-director doing projects like Vox Lux, which um, yeah. Steve and JJ talked about over on uh, on Trailer Rewind. Yeah, that's a good one. I, he's he's an interesting, uh, interesting character. I think we also, you know, the other one we have is um, Charles Duckworth uh, as one of the friends, and um, we, you know, if you've he's he's been on a, a number of things. He's another one of those faces on uh, a lot of television, a lot a lot of television. Um, we just watched him in an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer around here. <laughs> so it was uh, timely to see him 
on both of these things, but he's been in all the uh, all the TV. So much TV. Although not since 2009. Like, his TV stuff has really dropped completely off. And now, um, like, even since then, it's it's mostly just, you know, a couple recent movies. Like, he hasn't done, like, he's really dropped out of the industry um, for the last decade. Which is too bad. I like him. Yeah, he was fine. I mean, he wasn't in it much. He played Javi, the boy that, that um, <laughs> both girls end up hooking up with. Yeah. At various points in the story. We're, speaking of both girls hooking up, uh, where do you stand on our um, uh, lifeguard in distress? Uh, Luke? is <laughs> weird. Kip Pardue? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was interesting. I think that um, was um, an interesting element of the way that the story evolves with these two girls wanting to... Not really... You know, I mean... Tracy looks at him as like, he's Luke. He's the guy who lives next door. Yeah. And Evie, of course, is like, let's go. He's got his own place. His parents left it to him. This is perfect. And it turns into this. Um, I mean, it really becomes the dark side and the flip as as they kind of come on to him in this way. And, you know, I mean, good for him. He's like, you know what? You're jailbait. Get out of here. And he kicks them out. And then he moves. <laughs> he sells the house. Yeah. As we see later. He sells the house. Um, it was an interesting resolution of of his character and um uh but and it sets an interesting thing and this might be a good time to start talking about kind of the way the film is put together because what i found so interesting is hardwick chose to play with the color in the film in the color treatment and the film starts off a little more muted in its colors and once she connects with evie the colors just pop it becomes very explosive in the colors after this point that when they're in Luke's place, um, the colors slowly start draining out. And by the time she's at her bottom, when you have that confrontation between the two moms and the two daughters in the house, it's just like nothing but kind of like cold blues and everything. And it's not. And then after that, of course, once you have that moment where um, where uh, Mel stays with Tracy and says, I'm here for you and and, and is going to help her, that you have the color come back into the into the film. And so it was really interesting the way that she did that um, throughout kind of playing with the color to kind of emphasize this, um, the mind, the, the state of mind that we have Tracy in. Yeah, right. Uh, I, I thought so too. I thought it was, it was very cool, uh, especially, you know, but when you, it, to me, it was so subtle that it just, I, I realized we were essentially in black and white as they're, you know, huddling on the floor of the kitchen. Um, she says, you know, I love you and your brother and I'll, I'll, you know, but that that fantastic moment where she's like, I'm not leaving. It was essentially black and white. And I thought that is I did not see it uh, happening around me until right then. And I realized that all the life had been sucked out of of, you know, Tracy at that moment, you know, using color to demonstrate, you know, that cerebral emotional and physical low uh, was so, so cool. That was something like, as a first-time filmmaker, I mean, and she she came from the world of production design, so it completely makes sense. And she worked with people on films like Three Kings. The filmmaking style in that has such an interesting look, like the color treatment that um, David O. Russell applied throughout that film to make it so stark. Like, it makes sense that she's been in the industry long enough where she thinks about these things and like how do i use these tools and because like even the editing the way that she was capturing the scenes and everything like with the kind of the 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 um 
just the, the different editing styles and the way that she would kind of like use jump cuts and, and, and kind of speed footage up and, and kind of do the stutter frames and stuff like that. Like it was, it was so fascinating to watch. Like clearly she's like infusing this film with this, this style that had like this manic 13 year old energy. And that was something that I found so exciting just in the way that she decided to kind of um, infuse this story that was co-written by a 13 year old with that same energy. And it just like, I, I was so impressed with what, what she brought to the table um, right out of the gate as a filmmaker is, is very exciting. It was, it was uh, super energetic, uh, energetic framing, energetic camera uh, love that she's willing to experiment so deeply with color and, and tone. Uh, just, I, I thought it was great. Very exciting. Very exciting stuff. Um, I, just Mark Mothersbaugh did the music. Of course, uh, he's just always fantastic. Oh, yeah. Although I, I have to say, nothing really stood, jumped out at me, uh, and I didn't really notice it was Mark Mothersbaugh until at the end of the movie, and I think I I probably need to go back and listen to it. Probably the same for me. Yeah. The only other thing that I thought was interesting was costume-wise, they actually had the girls largely wearing their own clothes for the film, and... Over the course of the film, they actually said that the two girls started dressing like each other. And that's not something that Hardwick ever talked to them about. It's just they they slowly started moving into uh, similar styles. And I think that's that speaks to when young girls hang out with each other a lot. They they kind of meld into each other. Very interesting. That's funny. That's really funny. Have you uh, spent a lot of time with uh, Evan Rachel Wood's work? You know, I always enjoy her. She's, gosh, you know, and she, you know, this this episode is very timely because, you know, her new documentary miniseries is on HBO right now. Um, was it Phoenix Rising, I believe, that kind of a docu-series about her um, and her struggle with kind of coming out uh, with her own abuse that she had suffered uh, with uh, Marilyn Manson and uh, kind of coming to terms with that. And I haven't watched it, but... I do find her to be a very interesting actress. And this wasn't her first film. She had been, hey, one of your favorites. She was in Simone mm-hmm. the year before. Um, but, you know, she's an actress who I really enjoy seeing on screen because she portrays such interesting characters. Um, I, I just, I don't know if I have seen enough of her stuff. I'm, I'm curious to see, like, she's going to be in the Weird Al Yankovic movie and she's playing Madonna. So, It'll be interesting. I, I, I enjoy watching her. I think that she's a, a strong actress. And um, I'm curious, like once she's through with this stuff with the Phoenix Rising and kind of like getting through, uh, kind of like finding herself on the other side of of dealing with that trauma, um, you know, what, what are the types of stories she's going to continue telling? I um, spent a, naturally a lot of time with her in Westworld, which she's fantastic as uh, Dolores Abernathy. I have not oh, she's seen like old... lives on the old West, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. She's, I watched yeah. like the first episode of that. I remember seeing her, but I didn't get far. Well, I I haven't gotten uh, much further into. Her. I I saw Running with Scissors when it came out. The wrestler, she's fantastic. Um, the uh, but but I I have not seen like I'm looking at her catalog and I have not seen uh, nearly enough uh, of of her stuff. But she you know she's one of those where she was already uh, a an accomplished actor uh, when she made Thirteen. Um, how old, let's see, how old was she when she made 13? So she was born in 87. They were both 14. Yeah, it said that she and Nikki were both 14 and and Nikki turned 15 during the production. Yeah. Crazy. Uh, I mean, just demonstrates crazy depth that these girls are able to sort of conjure at that age. Uh, you know, 
for this film. I mean, it was it was it's pretty good, good work. Nice work if you can get it. Really astounding. What's your um, background with um, Catherine Hardwick, the director? Are you um, uh, Hardwick head? <laughs> uh, you're a hardhead. Hardhead. You're just, you're just hardhead. Yeah. That's weird. Not enough, probably. Um, uh, you know, I, I think so much of it is so much of the stuff that I'm really celebrating of her is just movies that I love from her production design uh, days. Like, I, I don't think, you know, I, I would be rough to have this conversation without mentioning again, Tombstone and Tank Girl, like talk about someone who is able to to conjure some incredible um, you know, a variety of tones and textures in, in the production design of those, of those movies. Um, but she's done so, so much, I, you know, I've seen Twilight and, um, I, I recognize. We'll be talking about Lords of Dogtown in our next series. Yep. Yep. Um, that's the coming. nativity story, unfortunately suffered a lot of controversy when that came out because of the, uh, the, the pregnancy of Keisha Castle Hughes, um, getting pregnant, um, when she wasn't married, which, you know, for the story being told, I think, um, made a lot of difficulty on the press tours with that. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously <laughs> Twilight was kind of where she, uh, where she was able to kind of make a bigger splash for herself, but I don't think it really, I don't think it helped her too much. You know, she didn't end up doing any of the Twilight sequels, uh, ended up in other people's hands. And then she did Red Riding Hood, which largely was panned. Um, Have you seen it? I haven't seen it. I haven't. I had it. Well, you know, it's in our 2011 uh, list of films that are 10 years old. So maybe we'll yeah. add it at some point. Gary Oldman, Lucas Haas. So definitely some interesting faces in that. And then like the rest of the stuff, like I just, I don't know much about. Plush, Miss You Already, Miss Bala. She's currently... Um, in post on Prisoner's Daughter, and then she's filming Tell It Like a Woman. She's got Mafia Mama and Heathen in pre-production. So she's very busy. I love that she's keeping so busy. I, I'm curious to actually visit more of her films to see, you know, if any of them, you know, if I if I connect with any of them. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm most intrigued right now about Miss Bala. It feels like one that I... I you know, I like Gina Rodriguez a, a lot, and so, and it just feels like a kind of, you know one of the of our um women action hard asses uh or badasses and uh i don't know it's unfortunate it doesn't it, it doesn't get over the six star uh line it's a 5.8 on imdb right now which makes me sad but uh, that's one that seems like it might be right up my alley yeah right right yeah overall good stuff yeah yeah, definitely somebody. I'm curious to kind of watch a few more of her things. Um, I don't yeah. know if it's a filmography. I'm like, oh, I got to see all of this stuff. But, you know, I, I'm curious to check out more of her work. Well, and again, Dogtown coming up. Yep, Lords of Dogtown in our next so, series. Very excited about that. All right, well, we will be right back. But first, our credits. <laughs> The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Field of Giants, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy, Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews or stars or shares or notes, please consider doing all that for our show.
how to do it award season, Andrew. Got some notice. Uh, first up, Holly Hunter did receive best uh, a, a nomination for best actress in a supporting role at the Academy Awards. Um, now, I, I have a question for you about this because I want to find out what. Um, well, let, let's just say Renee Zellweger won for Cold Mountain. Mm-hmm. Also nominated Marcia Gay Harden, Mystic River, Patricia Clarkson, Pieces of April, and uh, Shore Agdashalu for House of Sand and Fog. Um, of those. Now that I've seen this, and so this was the last of the films I needed to see to look at all of those, I think I would absolutely pick Holly Hunter for my choice. And then Patricia Clarkson, Pieces of April, probably second. Renee Zellweger is fine, but is, you know, is a big performance and everything. It, it just didn't stand out. And that film has largely been forgotten. I don't think anybody Evaporated. talks about Cold Mountain anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I totally agree. Totally agree. This is a Holly Hunter thing. The question I have for you is, do you think that Evan Rachel Wood and or Nikki Reed should have been nominated? Uh, Evan, I would assume, as best actress and and Nikki Reed as supporting. Um, Like, would you boot anybody and and add Nikki in that list that we just went through? Well, the question is, would you boot Holly Hunter? Right. I would absolutely not boot Holly Hunter. She Well, that's the thing. Could did that be why they didn't you know, we they didn't work harder to get a nomination for either of the girls? I think I, I do think that Evan Rachel Wood um, would have uh, merited a nomination in this movie. It's a hard movie and she did a fantastic job. Um, but would you want to put both of these women in that category? Well, I would put Evan in best actress. I mean, they didn't win either. But wouldn't you just guarantee that they, you know, wouldn't have uh, neither would have won? Well, but you're putting if if I if I put Nikki in as supporting and Evan as let's say Evan as best actress with Holly Hunter too. Well, well let's come back to that. No, I wouldn't put uh, no Holly Hunter's supporting actress. Oh, she that's was what she was nominated. For. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay, she was. Yeah. yeah, so she would be up against Nikki, and I would still pick Holly Hunter over Nikki. Um, yes, agreed. But I would put Nikki in over Renee Zellweger. Yes. And she's the one who won. <laughs> yes, I agree with that. All of and, that. And, you know, Marsha Gay Harden, Mystic River, uh, I don't know. I Mystic River is okay. another one that just sort of evaporated for me. Yeah, everyone loves I, that. That movie just did nothing for me. I wasn't very excited by it. The other one. Oh, so let's go to Best Actress now. So we're talking about Evan Rachel Wood. Does she fit in with this lineup? Charlize Theron won for Monster. Diane Keaton was nominated for Something's Got to Give. Keisha Castle-Hughes nominated for Whale Rider. Naomi Watts in 21 Grams. Samantha Morton in, in America. Okay. I mean, I haven't seen Something's Got to Give, so I can't speak to that one. But, uh, and, and, you know, it goes in, that one falls into that comedy lineup of like is the comedy performance as strong as a drama performance because i can easily use that reasoning to drop diane keaton and to add evan rachel wood i just i without having seen it i don't know if it's completely fair but like those other performances all are incredibly strong i don't know i guess if i dropped one it would be naomi watson 21 grams and i'd put evan rachel wood in instead you know i think between those two strong performances i'd prefer evans yeah me too me too i i haven't seen what was the uh, in America, in America, yeah, I haven't seen that one. Oh, that's an amazing film, is it? But still, amazing, not one that you'd consider for in this conversation. Um, to have Samantha Morton win, I wouldn't for drop Samantha her. Morton. Absolutely not drop her. That that was my question. Would you drop her in favor of? No, no, no. I would one hundred percent not. No, I would either okay. drop Diane Keaton, 
I, I would drop Diane Keaton, but I haven't seen the film. So I just feel a little, so of the ones that I have seen, I would drop Naomi Watts. I would not drop Samantha Morton, who I almost would pick as my winner of the choices. Her, she oh, was so strong okay. in that film. Fantastic. Oh, well, I need to see it right away. It's hard to go up against Charlize Theron and Monster, um, but I know some people argue that, oh, she's just wearing makeup and it's just, she's ugly, so she wins. She, it was still damn fine performance. So Yeah, it's a fine performance. Okay. Um, so anyway, that's the Oscars. Over at the Independent Spirit Awards, uh, the film won, uh, actually Nikki Reed won Best Debut Performance uh, for that film. It was nominated for Best First Feature and Best First Screenplay. Uh, the film Lost a Monster for Best First Feature. Uh, you know, um, they're both very difficult films to watch. Very both difficult. And, very and... interesting portrayals of women in relationships uh, directed by women. Um, boy, that's a that's a tough call. I probably would pick 13, but I don't know if it's completely fair. Um, you know, as for best for screenplay, it went to The Station Agent instead of 13 and Monster. In that case, I would pick the station agent. I really connected with that script and found it worked exceptionally. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on those? Uh, I actually, now I now I suddenly can't think of the station agent. Maybe maybe Peter I didn't Dinklage. see that. Oh, uh, right, I did see Dinklage, that. Patricia Clarkson, yeah. uh, Bonnie Cannavale. Yeah, um, I, <laughs> a great movie. Oh my god, it's so yeah. good. I step, man. This is hard. I the, it's it's really hard. I don't. I I think. Uh, I don't know. I I just I'm a I'm a fan of of Monster legit. Like I think everybody in there is is wonderful. Um, and again, you're right. It's such a hard hard uh, film. But I think overall, I I might stick with thirteen uh, for what these two young women are able to do together. I think it's I, I yeah. I I'd have to go back and watch Monster again. I haven't seen it since the theater in 03, so it's been been some Christina, time. Christina Ricci is I mean we talk a lot about Charlie's Throne but Christina Ricci is also quite <laughs> As good, do the quite as good. do the characters in this film. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> Interesting. Hey, this is a side note. What was up with the fake movie posters for the Jack Black and John Cusack <laughs> movies? Know, that was so funny. <laughs> I was like, uh, Catherine must know them or something in yeah, order to so, allow them to kind of use their names and likenesses, but not any movies that they actually had permission to use because those are just like terrible movie posters. So good. So good. <laughs> oh, my. All right. So that's it for the awards. That's it. Are we, that's it for are the we awards, good? Yeah. good? All right. So then tell me about the, the money. Did it? Uh, this was supposed to be a direct. A uh, video little comedy project, coming of age project, ended up being something uh, worth something. How to do? Something worth something. That's right. It was Hardwick had a really hard time getting the money for this um, because she would talk to a lot of people, and they're like, "Ooh, this is not the sort of film that has any home anywhere because it's you know <laughs> teen self destruction and all this stuff." And like, how do we? how do we find uh, an audience for this? So she really struggled. Eventually she got Holly Hunter to sign on and that helped her get the money. That became a legit project. Uh, so she ended up getting $2 million to make the movie. That's about $2.8 million in today's dollars. The movie premiered at Sundance in 2003, then had a limited release starting August 20th, 2003 opposite Freddy vs. Jason, Open Range, Uptown Girls, Grind, American Splendor, and Passionada. The film only opened on two screens and didn't make much of a dent until it got some good reviews, which was enough to crack the top 20 in week 
2003. The movie went on to earn 4.6 million domestically and 5.5 million internationally for a total of 14 million in today's dollars. That puts the film at an adjusted profit per finished minute of almost $113,000. That's a good start for Hardwick. Yes, it is. It's a good start and makes next movie easier. Absolutely. Uh, I think it's uh, How do you think this stacks up as a an actual coming of age? film well i think that over the course of this semester like what is the age that is come of i i think it's it's learning to get through all of this and that family yeah. will support you and it's it's that growth of the mother-daughter relationship and that finding that trust and 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 figuring out there are dark roads that can lead to devastation and ruin but you know the right person is there to help you and so i think there's a lot of lessons learned for for tracy over the course of this film and she's able to kind of get herself back on track with the help of her mother i think so too and, and I, that was like such a great ending for the film like seeing her on the merry merry ground because one it's a merry go round which is just one of those things it's just like life it just kind of keeps coming around and around but it also is so childlike and it felt for me like you know she's back in in kind of like a safer mindset now I, I feel like it's uh, like there are coming of age movies that allow us to come of age through pain and learn the lessons of, of growth through pain and hardship. And that's very much what this one is. And there are coming of age films that do it through comedy and, uh, you know, really leaning in on the awkwardness of of what it means to to, you know, to grow up and get through puberty and learn important lessons, but do it through through humor. And which we saw uh, in Slums of Beverly Hills, right? Which we saw in Slums of Beverly Hills. Absolutely. And that's that is actually the the sort of counter. And I know we, we can talk more about this in our in our retake on this series. But this is one of those movies that is that marks a, a high point for me just in terms of of having these performers be able to do hard things believably uh, and not make it feel like uh, the the actual come of age part at the end is unearned i i found it uh believable at the end i found it believable i liked it more you know for more stuff um than i didn't like i found it believable <laughs> yeah it's it's definitely a film that um was was strong in its portrayal of this this life for this girl and the decisions she was making in it. And that made it very challenging. It was a very, very challenging watch. Yeah. Very uncomfortable. But the way that it unfolded and especially once we got to the end, because honestly, I'll, I'll tell you, when when we see her, uh, she can't find her scissors to cut with. And so she instead decides to use a razor blade. And then it seems like she can't stop the bleeding. And I was like, and then it blacks out. I'm like, oh, my God, is she going to wake up in the hospital? Yeah. Uh, like mom found her and she was dying. Like what happened here? And then it just cuts to, you know, she's back and everything's normal. And But that speaks to, like, that dark place where she could be going. You know, she's switched to something that's much less safe and doesn't you know, necessarily use it properly. I was convinced that it was going to go to a much darker place. Um, and so it's a very challenging film because it has these things that you see these young, 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 young uh, girls doing. It just it was very hard, but I was um, incredibly impressed with the strength at which it was portrayed. It's just not an easy film to watch. I agree. Yeah. Uh, all right. We'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, Diary of a Teenage Girl. My name is Minnie Getz. I'm recording this onto a cassette tape because my life has gotten really crazy of late. I had sex today. I'm so happy. <laughs> if you're listening to this without my permission, please stop now. Just 
stop. I'm gonna kill you! This makes me officially an adult. Do I look different than I did yesterday? Hey. Hey. It feels so good to imagine that he might be thinking about me. I wonder if anybody loves me who I don't know about. This is a monstery. I get distracted sometimes. Overwhelmed by my all-consuming thoughts about sex and men. I don't know what's wrong with you. You think you'd be more into boys. What are you waiting for? You have a kind of power, you know. You just you don't know it yet. I got a girl, she's sweet as can be. All the other boys want to be like me and oh. I refuse to be some sniveling crybaby. This is my life. I don't want to brag, but it was quite a piece when I was your age. To the mountains, we can sail the Emerald Sea. Drop a I know nothing's changed, but everything looks totally different to me now. This is for all the girls when they have grown. That brings us to Letterboxd. Andy, how are you going to land your review? This was a challenge of a movie to watch. As I was watching, I'm like, this is the worst thing I could ever watch. I am being tortured right now. But as I said, the film, it kind of shifts and becomes this incredibly powerful family story. And it drew me in. It got me... um, I think I'm going to land at four and a half stars and a heart. Okay. That's where I am. All right. I, I as you know, I'm Pete, no half stars. Uh, right. And so I am, I'm going to land at four stars. I think there's just enough, uh, you know, just enough stuff in here that I'm, I find uh, frustrating. And, and because you made me yell about the dad. And that's really it. That's a one star violation. <laughs> I, I hadn't been thinking about it that much. But you made me yell at the dad, so I have to go back to, to four stars. But but that is four stars with a strong heart. Strong heart. Okay. Okay. There it is. <laughs> well, what did you think about 13? We want to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community. We're going to be talking about this movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox, give it, Andy. As Letterbox <laughs> always do it. So, so hard. I can't believe we didn't say this. I'm going first. I can't believe we didn't say this in the course of our conversation. Russman says three and a half stars. I had to pause the movie for a while and go watch YouTube clips of chickens not moving their heads. That was awesome. That was in this movie. That was chickens and heads. Did You're you not excited there? enough about it. No, I am very excited. There was actually a credit. For the person um, who had come up with that for the film, I have to find it now. Um, let me see if they have it. Uh, they don't have it labeled in the IMDb credits, uh, which is unfortunate. But yeah, there was actually a special credit for the person who, um, I don't know if it was an animal wrangler or what, but had come up with a thing where, oh yeah, look, if you, if you do this with the chicken, it won't move his head. Crazy. That was, that was <laughs> so weird Ugh. like why was that there why was there i guess they had chickens in their backyard yeah they did they had a that, whole coop yeah. they had a coop that's right yeah it's like what is it that so so now i we have this crossover of chickens and cheetahs 
What is it about chickens and cheetahs that make it so they can move without moving their heads? I didn't know that was a crossover. What are... I'm saying that there's a there's a what? Venn diagram of chicken cheetah. Is this a thing? Like, did you just make this up? Like, what? What? No. When you when you watch, no, I'm just talking about like when you watch cheetahs run, their heads don't move, but the rest of their body is going crazy. I've never noticed that. Uh, are you kidding? Okay. Well, now I need to start doing my own search for YouTube videos to send you. Chickens and cheetahs. All right, what's yours? Okay, I've got this four-star by Grace. Okay. I keep forgetting that they were only 13. Like, what? I was trying to jumpstart a homemade (laughs) bookmark business at 13, not trying drugs. (laughs) (laughs) But Ronja says with the four stars, when I was 13, I had a Twitter dedicated to Glee. Uh, uh, thanks, Letterboxd. I'm changing the name of our podcast to Chickens and Cheetahs. 